Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is evidence not going to end well. Okay. No this is not Vice, going Vice to President end well. Five states in fact, had mail-in ballots. Sir, so we're moving on to the next. We're moving on to the your administration. That's not an idea. Everybody Antifa in your administration tells you the truth is a, has a bad idea. Can I tell you what? You have no idea. Antifa said Mr. stupid uh, bastards. Not sir, said stop. I would never say that. I would that play it. So now, mail That was really a productive segment, wasn't it? Keep yapping, man. The people understand you. Well, that about sums it up. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You heard President Donald Trump, former Vice President Joe Biden, and moderator Chris Wallace during the first presidential debate last night. Were you watching? You can tweet us at WMPR Wheelhouse. I know I have a headache still after watching that for 90 minutes. We're going to talk about that debate and other news around our state with our panel today. We promise not to interrupt each other and shout personal insults, at least while we're on the air. Mark Pazniokas says the Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. You can follow him at CT Mirror Paz. Mark, welcome back. Thanks for having me. I'm trying to be polite today. <laughs> Charles Venator Santiago is also here, Associate Professor of Political Science at UConn. Charles, how you feeling this morning? Good. Thanks for having me again, also. <laughs> and Colin McEnroe is here, host of the Colin McEnroe Show, and he's a columnist at Hearst, Connecticut. Hi, Colin. Hi, Lucy. Hi, Paz. Hi, Charles. <laughs> Again, you can join us on Twitter at WMPR Wheelhouse. So where do I begin, uh, Charles? What a mess. Uh, Wolf Blitzer saying this is the most chaotic presidential debate in history. What was your uh, reaction? I, you know, I, I, I had a hard time following the debate because uh, the president just kept inter- interrupting in ways that were that was disruptive of efforts to tell the story, to talk about policy, to talk about, it's almost as if he was just uh, trying to prevent the debate from happening. Uh, And that was complicated by continuous lie after lie after lie and contradictions and uh, as if he were trying to repeat over and over uh, particular lines in a forum that would give it enough legitimacy so that if you repeat it enough, it becomes a sort of truth for some folks. So it, it was a difficult uh, 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 debate to follow because I, I just didn't understand why we had to disrupt the debate or why the president had to disrupt the debate so much. And I, the last point, I was also impressed or, or I didn't say impressed, a little shocked, a little bit taken aback by how uh, aggressive uh, Vice President Biden was in these kinds of forums. I don't think he had much of a choice, but it, it, was, it just had a different note to prior debates. Hmm. Uh, Colin, you tweeted about Trump uh, and President Trump uh, interrupting, and that was part of obviously his strategy for the night. But pick up on what Charles just said about what you thought of um, former Vice President Joe Biden's performance, so to speak. Well, first of all, Joe Biden 
you know, in the sort of spectrum of political behavior is, like Donald Trump, much more of a chaos Muppet than an order Muppet, right? You know, within the world uh, of Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, you know, Biden has always been the guy who blurts things out and is undisciplined and hard to control. Uh, and last night, his his better strategy was to be the grown up. Uh, it was clear that Trump was going to behave like a petulant child, uh, continuing his war that, that he has waged uh, on our normative structure of, of American public life for the last five years. Now, the difference and to, to Charles's point, why did he have to do this? Why did Trump have to do this? Uh, you know, we know that we know from 2016 that he did stuff like stalk Hillary Clinton around the stage physically like, you know, he was some predator in the dark chasing a woman from her car to her door. Uh, you can call it, he said, said she was such a nasty woman uh, in a debate, which really kind of violated the typical decorum of presidential debates. Last night was worse. Now, why was it worse? Because he's behind. He's way behind in the race right now. And first of all, that makes him furious. He has no temperamental capacity to absorb that kind of, uh, of information that he's losing. And he's losing because he's presiding over uh, an American economic and public health disaster. And, and he, I mean, he did things that nobody would do if they thought that they were winning, including try to cast doubt on the validity of the votes. I mean, you only do that if you think you're going to lose the election. There's no upside to saying that, that you can't trust the balloting process if you think you're about to win the election. So to me, that was part of the big psychological subtext. A lot of his rage was just coming from the, the position that he's in right now, which he has no capacity to tolerate. Let's uh, play a clip from the, deba the debate in quotes. Uh, I believe a cat. It's A3 where you hear uh, President Trump answering uh, Chris Wallace about voting. I think I'm counting on them to look at the ballots. Definitely. I don't think we'll, I hope we don't need them in terms of the election itself. But for the ballots, I think so. This is going to be a fraud like you've never seen. The other thing, it's nice on November 3rd, you're watching and you see who won the election. We won't know. We might not know for months because these ballots are going to be all over. And uh, Colin, he's uh, again mentioning how he's going to count on the Supreme Court to settle any dispute after Election Day. One thing that was uh, something that he spoke that was probably fact is that we will not know uh, who is going to win this election on uh, November 3rd. Uh, what were some other notable moments, uh, Colin, that stuck out in your mind? Yeah, first of all, I'd just like to say it won't be months. I mean, the seating of electors happens on a structured schedule. It could, 30 days would probably be the longest period of time that there could be uncertainty, but it won't be months. Well, I mean, I think a lot of people honed in on the fact that, you know, not only was he unable to strongly denounce white supremacist activity, which he's been, been unable to do in the past, but he kind of doubled down on it. I mean, he actually gave the Proud Boys literally a new mm. slogan. They have redesigned their logo uh, so that they have one now that says, stand back and stand by, uh, which is what he said to the Proud Boys. I, I think one of the things that I hope we can talk about, I would love to know my fellow panelists' thoughts about this. There's kind of a debate going on right now uh, about the debate. Should there be two more debates uh, in October? Should Biden withdraw from the debates? Should the Presidential Commission on Debates say, we're not going to have any more debates unless we can fix this, unless we can guarantee that it won't turn into what it was on September 29th. And I think it's an interesting question. I think tactically there might be some reasons why Biden shouldn't refuse to debate 
two more times, but also some very interesting reasons why he should uh, withdraw. And and but I think a lot of this has to rest with the commission. Are they going to do nothing after last night or are they going to try to fix this process or are they going to cancel the debates if they can't get cooperation from from the Trump campaign? Mm, Mark Pazniokas, what do you think about that? I don't think there's any rule that you can enact that's going to control Donald Trump. Um, the question would be, um, do you give the moderator the ability to actually turn off a microphone? That has never been done. Um, that would be an astonishing thing. Would Trump agree to do that? Um, but, you know, I, I don't see Biden refusing to come on because w- one of the ways in which the president helped Biden last night is he totally distracted people from what was a Republican narrative. And that narrative was Joe Biden, who's going to turn 78 in November, is too old for the job. He's becoming feeble, Um, whether it was because of COVID or they just want to keep him in a bubble. Biden has not been out in public a lot. And I was struck last night by how the president worked against his own self-interest. This was an opportunity, if indeed you can stoke those questions about Biden's capacity at this point. He totally blew it because the president kept not only did he keep Biden off balance, he kept Chris Wallace off balance. There was no opportunity to really have a coherent line of questioning. Um, It was distracting to the audience. So there were a few moments last night early on. I thought uh, Vice President Biden was faltering a bit. But, you know, the president just kind of barged in and the president wanted to be in the spotlight. He was in the spotlight. And and one of the consequences is that Biden kind of got a free ride. Um, and I'm not saying he isn't up to the job. I'm saying that's been a question. And in a campaign season where we have not seen very much of Joe Biden in live events, this was one opportunity that was really missed for the American public, but also Trump. If Trump really believes that Biden is not up to snuff, he should have kept his mouth shut more and let Chris Wallace do his job and press the vice president uh, on the issues. Charles, we got a tweet from Ben Rodriguez who says the story uh, from last night is Trump being a buffoon and making a mockery of democracy. But I'm thinking about uh, his base, his performance last night. Does it really hurt him among that base, Charles? No, I think it it, it strengthens his place with the base. Uh, And and I'm wondering whether this is part of a three-part strategy where you appeal to the base right now, then later on you appeal to the independents and then later on to the general public. Um, so I, I saw this as an effort to reaffirm his points in a national stage that has draws a lot of attention by simply repeating what he's been saying in other forms um, and, and, and strengthening his base. I, I, but again, I don't know if this is part of a three-part strategy to have different types of performances. Mm. Colin, uh, we also heard from Bilal, uh, who says refusing to condemn white supremacists is not wanting to alienate a key part of your base. Can we go back to that moment where he talks to and about Proud Boys and and what like what that means? Because we've heard that kind of talk before over the last uh, three years. And you'd you'd also tweeted something about uh, technically a dog whistle is a thing you can't hear. Uh, Not the case with Trump and race baiting. 
Right. Everybody's, everybody says dog whistle, but that really mm-hmm. is, you know, a very specific uh, trope uh, about somebody sending a secret signal. I don't think Trump does that anymore. I believe this the whole line of questioning last night arose from his famous equating uh, after Charlottesville of both sides, saying they're fine people on both sides of the Charlottesville incident. Biden called him on that last night. Uh, and then I think it was Wallace who pressed him, you know, can you you know, openly renounce these groups. It was, as Charles has pointed out, sometimes difficult to see, to know who was saying what, but it sounded like Wallace was saying, Trump was sort of saying like who, and Wallace threw out a couple of names. And that's when Trump kind of blurted, you know, I would say to the Proud Boys, stand back and stand by. Um, You know, this is the argument for having the debates, that Trump is ordinarily surrounded by sycophants, by people who, you know, will try to make him feel good about himself. This is a situation where, you know, a way it's the one situation where he's not really just the president of the United States anymore. For for Chris Wallace, he has to be one of two candidates who have equal status on the debate stage. And I don't think he likes that very much either. And, and he will. He will blurt things. He will say things that he thinks. You know, that are part of his internal monologue. Uh, and that's maybe the argument for continuing to have two more debates. The argument against it, I think, is that so much misinformation was put out last night. Mm-hmm. And, and the stuff, of, you know, about calling into question the legitimacy of the election, allowing Trump to once again try to set the stage for his own possible refusal to accept the results. That's actually kind of dangerous you know, <laughs> to keep letting him have a forum uh, for, for stuff like that. Mm. Well, uh, you know, so it, it's, it, it speaks to the need to, I think, redefine what a moderator does. I think if we're going to go forward with these, the moderators have got to think of themselves as interviewers, not moderators. And, you know, Chris Wallace, who had a very memorable interview with the president where he fact check, checked him in real time. This was a different job last night. And Wallace said that going into it. But the question is, was that the right move? I don't blame Chris Wallace for trying to be a traditional moderator to let the candidates um, take the spotlight. But that's going to be a decision for the commission of what do we need to do if we're going to go forward? What's the approach? Now, the next moderator is Stephen Scully, who's been with C-SPAN for 30 years. You know, this is not a guy who's been in the face of people doing hard interviews. Um, so I'm not sure how that's going to go. Or actually, I have an idea how it is going to go. <laughs> Charles, you know, I was thinking last night that there are Americans, it's hard to believe, who would say they're undecided. And are they the ones that are even watching last night? Well, I don't think yesterday was for that crowd. And I think a lot of yeah. people turned off the TV If I, as I was mm-hmm. reading secondary stuff. Halfway through the debates, they were frustrated. Uh, I think this targeted his base. Um, my concern, I mean, let me not use swear words on live television. <laughs> my, my concern is that this, uh, this performance, if you will, is exposing the worst or the weakest, link, the weakest parts of the Constitution or the political process. And usually, or traditionally, from my, my vantage point, we, we expect leftists to do this kind of stuff, but we're seeing this uh, now play out by sort of conservative or right-wing sort of positions. And I'm wondering whether this is gonna be helpful to rethink how we how, how we do the presidential process. Uh, what are the weaknesses of the constitution? Because Trump is just sort of pressing on those weaknesses of our political process. 
If not a debate, uh, Colin, because we're in a pandemic, I mean, how can candidates get out there and still have interactions with with potential voters? Well, I mean, I think that's really a, a big problem. And it's been we talked about it last week, too, about just the problems of, of retail politics, uh, even at the General Assembly level in Connecticut at a time like this. I think it's less of a problem for two people running for president. You just have an awful lot of opportunities. You can you can sit down for, you know, for, for interviews. Uh, you can uh, get an awful lot of just sort of general. I always get I'm always confused about the distinction between unearned and earned media, but, but whichever the one is where you're actually newsworthy and people interview you, you can get that. You can do that. I don't think people running for president are prohibited uh, from from that by the the COVID problem. I mean, they may be may have some problems with rallies. By the way, I thought a moment where Wallace should have fact checked last night to pass his point uh, was when Trump said he's only doing outdoor rallies and that he hasn't had any problems. Well, try telling the family of Herman Cain that he hasn't had any problems, uh, mm. COVID-related problems, doing rallies, or that they're all outdoors. Um, you know, I, I, I just want to go back to what Paz was saying. I totally agree that somehow or other, the job of moderator is going to have to be re-understood. And I don't think in the short window of time that we have here, it's going to be easy to do that. It's, as you said, Stephen Scully and then uh, Kristen Welker of NBC News gets the, the last crack at this. But I, I think somehow or other, the direction has got to come from the commission uh, about, you know, how can this process somehow be better, whether it's a cut switch on the mics or some other way of in real time fact checking a lot of this nonsense. I, and I also agree with Paz that I'm, I'm not sure there is a way to fix fix it with Trump. He's so dedicated to undermining the process itself, to, to Charles's point, that it's hard to imagine him participating in a better option. Do you think that there will be interest, uh, Charles, in the vice presidential debate uh, next week, I believe? Obviously, uh, Kamala Harris, uh, Kamala Harris and uh, Mike Pence, uh, very different personalities. Uh, do you think people are going to tune in for that? I do. I do, because it's, it's going to be a little bit different. Uh, I think uh, I, I think both are legisl- uh, lawmakers with a tradition or have experience in law- the lawmaking process. And I think Pence is a little bit more reserved publicly than Trump. But can I make one point uh, about uh, elections? If I may, I'm sorry. One of the problems that we're seeing right now is that in the 2016 uh, election process, there was a lot of registrations. So there was an expectation that there was going to be higher voter turnout for this round of presidential elections. But with COVID, there's been a lot of family consolidation, a lot of mobility. And it's not clear whether people are registering to vote since they're moving around, particularly younger folks. The question for me is whether the debates are going to encourage people to vote more or or discourage people to vote more, particularly uh, mail-in ballots. Uh, we also, before this debate, uh, we, a lot of attention on uh, the New York Times report about uh, Donald Trump uh, just paying $750 in federal income tax in 2016 and 17. This is what he talked about last night. It was the tax laws. I don't want to pay tax. Be- before I came here, I was a private developer. I was a private business people. Like every other private person, unless they're stupid, they go through the laws and that's what it is. 
Colin, does this resonate uh, with with voters, ordinary Americans, uh, when they think about who they're going to vote for uh, come November 3rd? I thought that that was an issue (laughs) where Trump was allowed to skate a little bit last night. I mean, he came into that debate with a massive cut over his eye already, you know, and that that cut has sort of lots of different sub lacerations to it, including, yes, first of all, the fact that it's $750, he would have been better off paying nothing and saying he paid nothing. People kind of sort of accept the notion that very rich people hire very talented accountants and then they don't have to pay taxes. It's something about the $750. It's a recognizable number. You can compare it to what you pay. Uh, it's probably more likely to bother you somehow than, than the zero. But the other part of this is, you know, this story is not primarily a story about a rich guy hiring talented accountants to hide earnings and profit, although there is some of it there. It's about a guy who's losing money so fast that, yes, he actually can argue to some degree that he doesn't have tax liabilities. He actually has more money going out than he has coming in right now because he's a bad businessman. He's never been a good businessman. And on top of that, to deal with that problem, he now has $420 million in loans, $300 million of which are coming due in the next four years. And it's a very interesting question. Who ultimately is behind those loans? Who ultimately, where did that money really come from? Uh, Who is he obligated to? This is a a massive issue. And I I thought last night he he didn't really have to deal with it as much as I would have expected. Mm. Mark, what are your final thoughts, Uh, especially when we talk about potential voters? uh, Do you see the gender gap widening? If it can get any wider, because uh, it, it set a record last time. But yeah, not to, to engage in gender stereotypes, but there's a lot of data that, that women do not much appreciate performances like we saw from the president last night. And, and that's, you know, that's been shown in election after election. Um, so he's going to certainly uh, harden the, the, the gender gap that's there, if not expand it, if again, if that is possible. You know, the last poll I showed, it was only 10% of folks were undecided. But the interesting thing to me was that um, there were there were 50% of voters who said under no circumstance would they vote for Donald Trump. That number for Biden was 40%. So that means that 10% undecided vote is certainly gettable for, for Biden in a way that is not available to the president. Um, but, you know, and on the IRS thing, I just want to quickly say the subtext of the Times stories that it occurred to me in reading them is the story I have not seen anywhere is what the hell is it like to be in the IRS right now? You know, you started <laughs> audit before Trump was president. There is now evidence of potential evidence of fraud, as described by The New York Times, as as to how um, the Trump organization has handled this, you know, using uh, paying Ivanka as, a, as a, an employee, but also as a consultant and some of that's tax deductible. Um, and then he's elected president. You know, there's been a lot of attention paid to what is it like to be in the Department of Justice under Barr and under Sessions. But man, to be handling that audit of this president has got to be the great untold story of the last four years. 
Mm-hmm. Going back to the moderator question before we head to break, uh, someone tweeted, instead of Chris Wallace, we need a kindergarten teacher to moderate the next debate. Uh, that might be a good one uh, to watch. Today, uh, again, our panelists on the wheelhouse, Mark Pazniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror, Charles Venator Santiago, Associate Professor of Political Science at UConn, and Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show and a columnist at Hearst, Connecticut. Coming up, we're going to pivot back to Connecticut and news here, including state lawmakers meeting for another special session. Mark Pasniokas will break it down for us. You can join us too. Find us on Twitter at WNPR Wheelhouse. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. On the panel today, Mark Pazniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror, Charles Venator Santiago, Associate Professor of Political Science at UConn, and Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show here on Connecticut Public. Now, state lawmakers are back at the Capitol. The House is scheduled to meet today in a special session. The Senate will gather later this week. Mark Pazniokas, another special session. What's happening this time? Well, they have to make up for all that lost time, as as you and your listeners certainly know that uh, the, the legislature shut down in March due to COVID. Um, they really didn't pass any bills. Um, this is an election year. You, you may understand that legislators like to run on things they actually passed. So they did, you know, you remember they came back in July, they did the police accountability bill and a few other things. And now they're coming back and it's a, it's a longer list. It's 10 items. Uh, quite frankly, few of them need to be done now. And that's been the source of Republican opposition to or their objections to this special session. There are a couple of things that clearly need to be done now. Um, one is changing the rules for how you can process absentee ballots. Uh, they're not going to let people count them early, but there is a fairly complicated process of how you log these things in. There's two envelopes. There's, so the idea is they can start the processing earlier, uh, the Friday before the election, and that may speed up the counting on election night and uh, the days that follow. And the other one is kind of this little thing, and there, there were some regulations about hemp and they expire on October 31st. So there's a question of will the hemp business uh, be shut down if there isn't action? So those two things, you know, you can say there's, there's a, a, an understanding of why they're doing them now. But the rest of it, quite frankly, is uh, there's a little bit of politics and a, a little bit of the idea that there's an opportunity. Special sessions are indeed special. Um, it's a shortcut to passage. If you are dying to get something done, it's the easiest way to do it. You bypass the normal committee and hearing process. Everything is considered an emergency bill in a special session. And all that means is, again, there's no requirement for committee action or hearings. Um, so the, the marquee issues are, are really going to be, um, well, really the, the main one is the energy bill, which is a reaction to uh, the tropical storm that knocked out power to a million people. Obviously a lot of anger. Um, so there is, uh, that's the major order of business to look at how Connecticut does you know, rate setting, how performance factors into it. There's a provision on looking at executive compensation. 
So it, none of it needed to be done now. It can be taken up in January. And by the way, Pura, the Public Utilities Regulatory Authority, is already kind of doing it. So there you have it. How's, how's that for a, <laughs> a quick run through 10 items, most of which I ignored? <laughs> so we heard uh, Mark uh, Colin talk about a shortcut to passage. That sounds problematic when we think about things getting rushed through and the public not understanding the, the consequences. But there's also judge appointments that are happening. Why is why is that happening now? Well, it's a good question. Uh, that's it's unusual. But right before the show, Pat told me it happened in '94. But it's very unusual to do these judge appointments. Um, one of them might be because. Uh, the appointment that uh, that uh, Governor Lamont has made of Christine Keller to uh, take the place of uh, Richard Palmer, who's retiring because of senior status. She's getting pretty close on senior status too, a mandatory retirement. I mean, so uh, I guess you know if she wants to spend a little bit more time kicking around the offices there. Except that Paz also told me they're already there in their places. I just want to go back to uh, uh, just what he was talking about before. You know, I I am sort of a big fan of the public hearing process. I don't like to go to the public hearings. I don't like to have to cover them. But, you know, I, I think that idea of hearing a bill, vetting a bill, uh, understanding a change is a healthy thing. And so one of the things that's sitting on this calendar right now uh, is a modification of Connecticut's so-called Transfer Act. This involves brownfields or contaminated properties. Uh, Paz may have to fact check me a little bit on this, but my understanding is uh, the way things are right now, the burden is on the seller, basically, and the seller can accrue liability if the seller sells property that hasn't been redressed sufficiently uh, and that we're one of two states, New Jersey being the other one that has it, blah, 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 blah. You know, it all sounds like the change that they're talking about, which is backed not only by the Economic Development Commissioner, but by the Environment and Energy uh, Commissioner. It sounds like it's an okay thing to do, but without public hearings, without full debate on this, I have no freaking idea whether it's a good <laughs> good idea to do. And and I think that's a bit of a problem. I think Len Fasano, the, the Senate minority, leader has a case when he says, look, a lot of these bills aren't even drafted yet. We can't even look at language. Uh, and you're expecting to ram them through a special session without any kind of hearing process. It, it makes me nervous. I, I think more bad things happen than good things under these circumstances. Mm. Charles, did you think that the Connecticut residents are paying attention to this special session or what may or may not come out of it? I mean, from, from your perspective, I'm hearing uh, Mark break down well, some of the items that they're going to to touch on, you know, what needs to happen out of this special session that will make a make a difference for for voters and residents. I, I think I think we need to deal with COVID in a way. In other words, I wonder how much of this legislation is linked to COVID or response to COVID, and, and I'm not seeing that much uh, on the street. I mean, I'm doing some work, some interviews in the street, and people are, are busy trying to survive. We're trying to figure out how to live. And I'm wondering whether there's more legislation around COVID and and how these bills and other bills are going to address what looks like a year-long, maybe two-year-long process. Uh, at UConn, we're already being asked to prepare online classes for the spring. Uh, it's not clear to me how much we're doing to respond to the economic crisis created by COVID. Mm, that's a good point. Mark Pazniokas, I believe Democratic leaders a few weeks ago wanted uh, more resources for social service organizations to deal with COVID. Anything happening on that front? No, um, pretty much anything having to do with uh, revenue and spending uh, other than uh, there will be 
uh, a bonding bill for school construction. That was something they didn't get done earlier, and, and it is something you need to do really once a year, although the question is, do you really need to do it now? But the governor doesn't want to spend any money right now. Um, obviously, there's a lot of uncertainty about what the next couple of years are going to look like when it comes to budgeting. Um, Connecticut is very fortunate in that it was sitting on a huge budget reserve, uh, and that has helped. Um, if you want to mix in the politics, if you're Ned Lamont looking at running for re-election in 2022, you don't want to be running in a year in which you had to uh, preside over a big tax increase. So he is trying to keep the lid on spending. There's a lot of pressure from the nonprofit sector. You know, reimbursement rates have been flat for a long time in most areas. Um, there are some upward pressures on them. You know, the minimum wage is now on autopilot. It's going to go up every year until it hits $15, and then it's going to be pegged to uh, uh, consumer prices. Um, and uh, so that, that's the, the tension, and that's going to be the tension next year. Um, interestingly enough, uh, you know, Democrats expect to pick up seats, and that, that could complicate life for Ned Lamont, not make it easier, because the more folks you have uh, in a caucus, uh, it e the easier it is for people to really speak out and, and break with party discipline. And, and so there's, I think there will be debates next year on doing more progressive taxes and trying to find more revenue but that's that's you know that's nothing for now um and there's also you know there's a lot of disappointment on things that didn't make it in you know um families of inmates uh advocacy groups that look out for their interest uh have pointed out that uh, there's really uh, nothing in here that addresses the issues of, of covid in the prisons questions of early releases um and um, so again, this has not been, there's not a lot on this agenda that really has to do with the pandemic, other than the fact that the pandemic short-circuited the regular session in 2020. Mm. Uh, speaking of next session, Colin, we should mention that this special session might be the last hurrah for some of the, the leadership that are retiring. Can we talk about uh, Joe Arasimowitz, Themis Claritis, and Len Fasana? Yeah, so they are, uh, their jerseys are all going to be hoisted up to the rafters uh, of their respective chambers. And, and you know, that we have a pretty good thumbnail sense of, well, I mean, for example, I don't think there's any doubt that Matt Ritter will become the next Speaker of the House. Um, Candelora, I assume, uh, is going to step up. Although the, these, we talked about this before, some of these other positions will probably not be uncontested uh, in caucus. I think what's, what's about to happen, though, is you know, just, to go back to what Paz was saying, that's the, the the new leadership is going to inherit a gigantic fiscal question. Um, you know, where where is revenue going to come from? Uh, are you going to start fast tracking things like sports betting uh, and uh, uh, recreational marijuana? Not that those, first of all, can be scaled up quite that fast, and and not that those are enormous sources of revenue, but things that they could maybe mull over or afford to get stymied on uh, in, in the past, maybe things that they have to do a little bit more quickly, and they'll be doing it with new leaders. And I also think Paz is spot on when he says, I mean, I, I think Marty Looney experienced this in the Democratic Senate, Senate caucus this year. You pick up a bunch of seats and you think, well, I guess I really get to call the shots. Well, not necessarily, not if you have disputatious people <laughs> added to your caucus who don't necessarily even listen to what you're saying, which was, uh, I think, the um, early experience for Marty. So, 
So, yeah, there'll be a lot of unpredictable things about the next session, starting with the leadership itself. That's Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show and a columnist at Hearst, Connecticut, here on The Wheelhouse. Mark Pazniokas is also here, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror and Charles Venator Santiago, Associate Professor of Political Science at UConn. Coming up after the break, a town leader could be fined for failing to self-quarantine after returning from a trip to visit her son. Do you think the state should be fining people for not following travel advisories? And shouldn't town leaders know about the quarantine expectation? We'll talk about that right after this short break. This is the Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. The first selectman of the town of Thompson said it did not cross her mind to check for quarantine requirements before she visited her son in the Air Force in Oklahoma recently. Oklahoma was on Connecticut's travel advisory list, meaning anyone who visited there was supposed to fill out a form and self-quarantine for two weeks or get a COVID-19 test to prove they were negative. After she got back, Amy St. Ange did not self-quarantine or get tested. Instead, she went to work as first selectman. She says someone complained to the state about her not quarantining. The State Department of Public Health called her and is currently reviewing what happened to determine if she should be fined and how much. It could be a thousand dollars total for her and her husband. On Facebook, she wrote, I violated the travel ban by refusing to report my whereabouts to the government. Government has no right to monitor my activity. I also believe they have no right to force quarantine on me or require me to have a COVID-19 test. Last I knew, the United States was the land of the free and home of the brave. We will appeal the fine when it's handed down to us. Colin, what was your reaction to the story? I don't think that her explanation passes the smell test, her explanation <laughs> that she didn't know. Uh, you know, the, the notion that these whole idea uh, of the banned states uh, and the fines that Governor Lamont uh, decided to impose, these have been sort of the whatever the equivalent these days of front page news would be pretty much everywhere. So if you're the chief elected official of a town and you don't know something, you don't know a piece of public policy that is extremely well publicized. First of all, I mean, you're supposed to be a leader. You're supposed to get the rest of your town to know about about this kind of stuff and you know as opposed to breaking these rules and then claiming you never knew about them I mean if she did know then she's not telling the truth and if she didn't know that's kind of a, you know on her and and kind of a disgrace that she wouldn't know about something as basic and well publicized as that you know to her other point about whether these things have constitutional force look this is the land of the land of the free and the home of the brave and 200,000 of those free and brave people are dead right now because of a pandemic and because of faulty and misapplied public health provisions that weren't adequate to control it so to be you know sort of waving the flag right now and saying you're standing up for individual rights when we're in the middle of a public health crisis where we need to have effective public health controls, to me is also irresponsible leadership. I think she's a bad leader. Charles, you want to follow that? <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I think about taking guns to elementary schools. I mean, we're, people are dying because of this public health crisis, this pandemic, and she's weaponizing a drug. I'm sorry, a pandemic. And I find that irresponsible. And, and you know, I think from a constitutional perspective, 
the public safety uh, trumps her, you know, f- uh, free speech rights uh, mm-hmm. because she's putting the at risk the lives of other people. And we know this scientifically. We know this empirically. At the same time, Mark, uh, she is reflecting what other uh, people in our state and our country believe, that they don't see this as a public health emergency. I'm wondering, because of the location, the small town of Thompson, they probably have much fewer deaths than a place like Hartford or New Haven. I mean, does that play into this uh, reaction to uh, why these guidelines are important to follow, Mark? Thompson is indeed a very small town. They've had two COVID deaths, uh, according to the Department of Public Health, and 49 cases. Um, that obviously is not the, the same uh, impact that you see in some of the larger places. Um, but, you know, her story has sort of shifted. Initially, she was looking for sympathy that she was going to see her son, who was going to be uh, deployed. You know, the question is, is that relevant? You know, is that is that what you're doing? The, you know, the issue is, is a, a fine of $1,000 a reasonable fine? What is the authority of the government? Miss um, St. Ange, uh, her assessment of how things work so far has not the view of the courts in Connecticut. Uh, the governor's powers arise from the General Assembly. And there's nothing really that dramatic about ordering quarantines in a public health crisis. Uh, There's a long history of that. Um, The U.S. Supreme Court, as well as state courts, have been very clear in deferring to uh, government entities when it comes to protecting the public health. Uh, The impositions on our freedoms uh, are temporary, and they are hardly onerous. Um, You know, we are conducting this radio show. Uh, We all could be in quarantine right now. We are doing this electronically. Mm -hmm. Um, to stay away from town hall for two weeks. You know, she can stay in touch with them by phone, by Zoom, by whatever. Um, The form she was asked to fill out is, I think I looked at it a while ago. Uh, It was, I think it was four questions. Uh, You know, one of my kids was coming from another state and we checked it out and it's just not that big a deal. Um, But her, you know, the quotes uh, that you mentioned speak to sort of her making it a political thing, a question of civil disobedience. And, you know, if you go for civil disobedience, you've got to be willing to pay, pay the price at the end of the day. Mm. Colin, I talked to Dr. Albert Coe just a few days ago about uh, quarantine fatigue. Yeah, we're all feeling it, but it's still important to practice social distancing and wear a mask uh, if we want to get through this. When you hear stories of, of town leaders who are not taking this seriously, it certainly uh, continues uh, to muddy up the fact that we need to be doing these things if we want to come out on the other side. Right. And there's even I'm going to allude to it, I think, during the feats of strength. But there's a court case going on about masks right now. Um, yeah. And, I, you know, I mean, Thompson may only have two deaths, but I mean, the the virus doesn't know whether it's in Thompson, Thompson or Killingly or wherever. I mean, people move around. The whole point of this is people move around and they spread mm-hmm. things and they spread things to other people who are going to go other places. So, yeah, I mean, we really need leaders, town leaders 
to step up and enforce and reinforce the seriousness of this situation and the importance of reacting to it that way. And, and just to double down on what Paz said, I'm not saying that all of these things should happen, but in fact, Supreme Court precedent gives the state a tremendous amount of power. The, the state under the Jacobson decision can compel, for example, vaccinations. I don't know that that would be a particularly good idea in this instance because there's, there's people are so dug into their position about it, it could cause more trouble than not. But uh, if Miss St. Ange thinks that the Constitution protects her in a time like this, I think she's probably wrong. Charles, again, you're a professor at UConn. Uh, I've been getting these daily updates of how many uh, positive cases and where, uh, what students are quarantining, how many. And then we think about the impact of COVID in places like Hartford. What are you seeing? So I, I actually have a couple of students who've uh, written to me and said, I, I can't come to class or I can't participate in video class because I'm uh, positive. Um, it's, uh, it's a tricky situation because we're getting ready to close UConn after Thanksgiving. Uh, so, so in some ways we're closing UConn for the same, for the same reasons that we probably would have, should have considered not opening UConn uh, and other public universities because there, people are traveling from all over the place. Um, but uh, I'm hearing a lot of depressed students, uh, a lot of students who are having a hard time. I have a hard time teaching, talking to a monitor after 25 years of teaching. This is a really difficult process. Um, on the other hand, uh, students appreciate that there's an effort by the university and by faculty and others to, to sort of be there for them and teach something. Uh, and I think there's been, with lots of kinks, I think good efforts across the state and various universities and across the nation to sort of rise up to the challenge and respond in difficult circumstances. So I think everybody's trying to do the best they can, uh, but we're still seeing a lot of students are not necessarily making good judgments uh, about hanging out together as a result of quarantine fatigue, in my opinion. Mm. Colin, before we head to feats of strength, uh, Charles made a good point about the question of, you know, should the university have opened in the first place? In another week or so, Connecticut's gonna be at phase three. Is the timing of this curious? It's, I, I, I'm divided about this in my own mind. I, I think that Governor Lamont's proce thought process here is we've got to try this. Uh, and, and if it doesn't work, we'll know right away and we'll shut it down. That This whole process will be kept on a very short leash. I mean, the other argument would be, well, just don't try it. It's too soon. Uh, we actually had uh, uh, an unusual bump, I think, in the last 24 hours or so uh, in our infection rate. We know that the winter, as people go indoors, is going to be a more dangerous time. It does seem like an odd time to be opening things, uh, and, and we may regret it. But I also feel as though, you know, Lamont is starting to hear voices. You know? I mean, there's a lot of people who are criticizing him for the slow pace of getting in particular to phase three. And, you know, I mean, he's a human being that may actually start to gnaw at him a little bit, the, the criticism he's getting from some quarters. Mm. Mark Paziokas, let's do feats of strength, airing of grievances. We have about three minutes. This may be more damning with faint praise than an actual feat of strength, but I, I will say that uh, after watching last night, uh, I'm feeling favorably disposed to Norm Edelman, David Arcanti, Paul Formica, and Charles Ferraro. Those are two Democrats and two Republicans who run the Energy and Technology Committee. Uh, I'm not ready to endorse what they're producing uh, today as far as legislation, but I have to say 
it's kind of uh, it's very pleasing to see the two Democrats and two Republicans work to produce a bipartisan bill. Um, they've been kind of models of of how government can work. Not everything has to be polarized. And of course, because I've said this, it'll all probably blow up this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> Charles, Valentin Santiago. You know, I, I want to do a shout out to fellow teachers, both K through 12, and uh, and this is a biased position, but there, with limited resources, a lot of teachers are doing, a, you know, the best they can in, a, in, in hard times, and they're doing a good job, I think, given the circumstances. And I'm excited mm -hmm. to see, you know, with all the challenges, how students are at least getting some sort of education during mm -hmm. these hard times. Colin, you get the last word. All right. So uh, in the world of judges, there aren't that many chaos Muppets. But Judge Thomas McCosher, uh, typically in Connecticut, is the biggest chaos Muppet on the bench. I thought he made a great ruling uh, in the anti-masking case that I was referring to before. Mm -hmm. The anti-mask people were trying to put up two expert witnesses, and he threw them out. One was an ophthalmologist, and I think the other one's a psychologist. He just said, these aren't real expert witnesses. <laughs> They have nothing to contribute to this. Bravo, Judge McCosher. <laughs> nice. I'll just, I'll just add, it's, it's a good time to get your flu shot. That's all. Uh, today's show produced by Matt Dwyer. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. I want to thank Colin McEnroe, Mark Pazniokas, and Charles Venator-Santiago. A great panel discussion today here on The Wheelhouse. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We'll be back next week. <laughs>